0: Now then, let's turn to Isaiah 43. And when you turn into Isaiah 43, you'll read the familiar words in the first three verses where God repeats over and over again the stupendous fact, I am with thee. He goes on to enlarge upon this, and Isaiah records it. God says, He is the one that formed Jacob and Israel. And they're not to be fearful. This, I believe, can be applied to Christians, to those of us that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And if today you're not one of those that believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and therefore your personal Lord and Savior, then perhaps you need to come to that conclusion ere this service finishes, so that you'll understand that the fears that you have, the problems you face, the inequities that seem to alarm you on a continual basis are the very things that God has said, fear not, about. So, he then amplifies why we shouldn't be fearful. He says, I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. Jesus said, I hold you in the hollow of my hand. God has said in the previous 40th chapter, I hold you in the hollow of my hand. I hold the the nations of the world, they're like a drop in the bucket, they're insignificant. And yet we think and we feel that the governments of the world are mighty powerful. On 2020, the other evening, they were sharing with us that there is precious little privacy left for anyone in this country. For there are so many things that have been put into, quote, our file whether those things are good, bad, right, or wrong, they have been put in the file. Once they're in the file, they're in the computer. Once they're in the computer, someone pushes a button, the computer spits out the bits and pieces, and we are either good citizens or bad citizens according to how the computer has been programmed. And if there's false information in that, pro- in that computer, then that's really tough, for it takes an enormous amount of time, a great deal of patience, an enormous amount of money to get it rectified. We are, said the commentator, spied upon. Hardly any of us realize it, few of us seem to know it, but we are in fact spied upon. God says quietly here, it really doesn't matter. I hold the government of the greatest nations of the world between finger and thumb. And they're like a drop in the bucket. And then he repeats himself and says in that 40th chapter, no, no, not a drop in the bucket. They're least. They're less than a drop in the bucket. So he says, in effect, they are point 0.1. And then he says, no, they're point zero, zero one. We get frightened because the government spies, we call it, or because the government infringes on our rights and this, that, and the other. And yet God says, fear not. It really doesn't matter what the government has to say. In most respects, it matters nothing at all. Because I have called thee by a name. I have redeemed thee. Notice, I'm not a number to be thrown into a computer with God. He says here in verse 1, I have called thee by thy name. How precious this is. How unlike the world it is. I have a name. I remember going into the army and I was told once as I walked through the certain doors and was given a card, I was told, memorize that number. That's who you are. What a dreadful thought. What a horrible feeling. Suddenly I'm reduced to a number. I'm one above the fellow beneath and one behind the fellow above. I'm a number. God says, don't fear, be fearful about me. My army is not made up of numbers. My army is made up of people that have been redeemed by me, who have personalities, who are individuals, and I call them by their name. Then God goes on. When thou passest through the waters, there's going to be trouble. I will be with thee. So when the governments and when all the society seems to be against those that love the Lord Jesus Christ, not to worry overmuch, I will be with thee. Then he goes on in verse 2, though the rivers, they shall shall not overflow thee, sometimes like a flash flood that we've recently had in this area. Great torrents of water gush down narrow gullies and suddenly wipe away and sweep away the banks and parts of the scenery and parts of the habitat and this uh, mightily destructive, God says, when that's happening to you in a personal way, don't be fearful. The river shall not drown you. It shall not overflow you. When thou walkest through the fire, lots of us have had terrifying experiences. But there is a note here that tells us that perhaps Isaiah was referring directly to those of occult disposition who caused people to walk through fire, such as hot coals. If you walked through it and got out the other side without a blister on your feet, then obviously you were a pure person and the charges brought against you were null and void. That sounds rather silly, but that was the custom. We do the same thing today. Exactly the same thing. If there is really nothing to worry about, you don't mind me asking these few questions, do you? So we put people through fire. If you are really honest, if you are really righteous, then you won't mind me making these comments, will you? We blackguard a person. We say, person, if you're really what you purport to be, you don't mind me being a snarly beast towards you, do you? A man once said that to me not long ago, a few years ago, and I said, I do object strongly. I don't want you to say those things. Ah, oh, said he, but if you're, if you're not guilty of these accusations, you won't mind. I said, no, no. That's your conclusion. That's your logic. So that you can spit and spill all kinds of vitriol. You're wrong. I'm right. I must have sounded very pedantic. He must have been very upset. He admitted so. But people today will blackguard others. We have to be careful. But the comfort is this. Though we go through the fire, We won't be burned. Neither shall a flame kindle upon thee. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to be in in view here where those three men in the fiery furnace that was cooked up seven times hotter for them, as they stood in that fiery furnace, they discovered there was one that stood with them. And it appeared to the king that it was surely the Son of God. How precious this is. Verse 3. I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, but here's the beautiful expression, thy Savior. Now the world will snaffle you up, will gobble you up, will engulf you, will swallow you completely. It'll burn you. It'll blackguard you. It'll do everything it can to destroy you. It'll cause a torrent to come upon you. It'll look as if you're going to be drowned in all the things of government and all the things that are going on around us. Ladies and gentlemen, that's because the world is Satan's system. But God says, I comfort you. I will not leave thee. I will not forsake thee. I am thy God. I have redeemed thee. I am thy saviour. I am the one that saves you from all of this turmoil. You can get ulcers worrying about these things, but says the Father, you can trust me and save your ulcers in effect. Now turn please to Revelation 5 with me, for I want to share with you that John on the Isle of Patmos had a great vision and I want to share this with you in a loving way, but challenge you. <coughs> because in this great vision, in chapter 5, John comes to the place where he's rather perturbed. For he finds that he has this marvelous book and these marvelous things that are open to him, and yet there is none that is worthy to open the book. And he says in this look at verse 4 with me. Well, we better back up. I saw, verse 1, I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept. I want to share with you that in the day in which we are living, there are many people that are turning out to be rather false prophets. Here is how you see them. They have a lot of answers to a lot of problems in a lot of areas. But a tragic thing is coming, and it is becoming more evident day by day. And the evidence is stacking up in this manner, that there is a book called the Word of God, and it's a closed volume to many people who purport to understand the Word of God. They're tackling the understanding, the unlocking of this volume, the understanding and the comprehending of this magnificent volume, which is the exhibition of the personality, character, and person of God. They are purporting to understand it through the intelligence. And so there is a colossal emphasis upon language comprehension. There is a tremendous emphasis upon exegesis, so long as it is done according to the method of this, that, or another professor or teacher. John was faced with exactly the same problem that Christians are faced with today. There was a book. How would he open the book? Now let's look for a moment in this portion of Revelation and carry on with verse 4. I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and read the book neither to look thereon. There was the reason of his weeping, and his prayers were liquid. They were all liquid. Soon the Lion of Judah comes into into view, and it is the Lion of Judah that breaks every chain that broke the seals of the book. And the book was opened, and the revelation of God was revealed to the world, to be misunderstood by many, to be comprehended by more to be experienced by a whole new nation of people called the Holy Children, the Holy Ones of God. Children of God. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would open the seals of the book, if you would understand the teaching of the book, then you must approach it, and you must approach it in a most humble manner. But the way to open and unlock the dark crevices of the Word of God is not with your intelligence alone, nor your spirituality alone, nor in combination with your intelligence, but it is in the liquid crying of prayers that will unlock the book. See, we talk very glibly about adoption. We talk of becoming this family of God, We talk about how we can enter in and understand God's holy word. We talk how we can enter in and understand God's wondrous grace. We talk about these things. But my dear friend, these things are for the children. So we have a great doctrine called the doctrine of adoption. We have this great doctrine in the word of God. We are children. The word to adopt in Greek means literally to make a son. To make a son. It's interesting, isn't it? Some of you recently have adopted little ones. Then look with me in Ephesians 1, chapter, in verse 5. Ephesians 1, 5. Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, God hath adopted us How did he do it? Well, he didn't go to some court. (coughs) He gave us a story in the Old Testament that's an illustration. Moses, a child, a small child, was put into a basket, you remember? The basket was lined with pitch and the basket was set to float down the river. He was taken by Pharaoh's daughter and he became her child, by adoption. His own mother, who was a Jewess, was encouraged to be his nurse. And she nursed him in those early years, but he learned the culture of the pharaohs, of the Egyptians. But he was never an Egyptian. He was always a Jew. He could only be adopted, now God says, you will be adopted into my family so long as you understand the next step. There's only one way into God's family. See, in the, in the fleshy sense, we are adopted into the family of God temporarily. That is now. Because at this point of time, this flesh of mine is continually sinning. It is prone to sin. We sing prone to one, the Lord, I feel it prone to walk away from God, prone to be in a sinful position and to satisfy the sinful passions and desires and needs of this flesh. So in this present, I am in a sense adopted for as yet I have not been translated, I am not yet what I would be. But when I see him, then I will be what I would be and I will be what I should be. But until I see him face to face, I am still in this flesh. Whilst I'm in this flesh, there is the adoption. I am a child of God. But when I see him face to face, I shall be the child of God. Because I shall put off this this corruptible and put on incorruption. I shall put off this mortality and put on immortality. I shall put off this carnality, and put on purity once and for all. But there is only one way into God's family. And Jesus said, you mustn't be surprised that there is no other easy method. There is only one way. Just as a child, there is only one way for a child to be born. Even a test tube child is inserted into the womb and born. We have, there is only one way to be born. We must bring the genes of male and female, put them together, and cause a child to be created and born. So says Jesus, why do you marvel that I say to you, there is only one way to be born into the family of God. That only way is to come into the presence of God by believing that God so loved you that He sent Christ, His only begotten Son, into the world to die for you. That's how you get into the family of God. Now, it may sound all very complicated, but men and women have complicated this by using evangelical phraseology in recent years and using it in all sorts of nonsensical ways. We read that motorcycles have been born again. We read that motor cars have been born again. We read that the uh, oil industry has been born again. You name it, it's been born again. So we're, 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 we're flogging this wonderful expression of Jesus in a commercial and damaging manner. And it's, I believe, Satan's way to dilute the passion behind the expression of Jesus. When he said, marvel not that I say unto you, ye must be born again. Today it's becoming meaningless. and The reason it's becoming meaningless is because people say, we're going to renovate the organ. In, now listen to the beautiful sounds. The organ's been born again. That's nonsense. But that's how we're using the expression. So we have taken pure, pure gold We have mingled it with other substances, we have broadened its application, and if we were to melt the other substances out of it, it would reduce to what it originally was. Let's do that. Let's understand that the nugget of truth that is in front of this congregation at this minute is that we become children of God. The method by which God hath chosen to bring us into fellowship with Him as a child is that we must be born again. Do you see that? It's a very precious thing. In the first epistle of John, and uh, chapter 4 and verse 17, as He is no more in this world, so I am not to be any more associating with this world. Paul says in the book of Romans, in chapter 8 and verses 16 and 17, the Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, joint heirs with Christ. Now that brings a tremendous responsibility upon us. And that colossal responsibility brings us to two areas. There's not time for me to develop these carefully, so let me just present them to you quickly. The first, there is the human side. There are four things that you, must, you and I must understand in the human side. The Bible teaches us this If you've still got your Bible open in the book of Ephesians, just turn with me to chapter 3 in verses 14 and 15. For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. I am part of that family. I have left off being an alien from the covenants and the promises of God entrusting Christ as my Lord and Saviour Now I walk as a child of the family of God. You see, as sons we have, according to this and many other scriptures, a family name. On the human side, in the second instance, we have a family likeness. That family likeness is revealed in every face that loves the Lord, is revealed in every life that presents itself to the Lord. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18. There are many other scriptures I'm rushing through. this, But let me share this with you. The family likeness is revealed this way. Verse 18 of 2 Corinthians 3. But we all, with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. So whether I like it or not, I have a glory that shines through me, and it is the glory of the Lord. Then, is another beautiful expression that comes up. I am instructed in the Scripture here that I must understand that we bear the parent's nature, the same nature that is in the Lord Jesus is upon those that love Him and those that serve Him and those that trust Him. Turn with me please to the second epistle of Peter and chapter 1 and verse 4 and you will see just a very brief comment whereby, says the apostle Peter in the second epistle, chapter 1 verse 4, Whereby we are given, is given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature. Why would God do that? Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's why. God has given us the parents' nature. I think that's phenomenal. I think it's wonderful, and I think it's beautiful. Now look, something else on the human side, God has given us the family affection. Why is it that we come together and we hug one another, or as Paul says, greet each other with a holy kiss? Some kisses are like vacuum cleaners uniting, but the holy kiss is not a vacuum cleaner uniting with a great suction, but it's a pleasant I love you, expression. It's a peck if you must, something like that. I wouldn't want to get into that, I'd get into trouble. But let me share with you the second chapter of 1 John, the first epistle of John, the second chapter. Turn with me there, and let's look just quickly, verse 9. He that saith, he is in the light, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth, because the darkness hath blinded his eyes. Don't we love one another? Oh, John's epistle here is absolutely cram full of these very beautiful expressions in verses one through four. Of the third chapter, you can read more of this. In, verse, in chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, there are more. But let me just bring you to ver- chapter 5 and verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone that loveth him that begat, loveth him also that is begotten of him. So whether you're rich or poor, friend, I love you. And I don't love you for your riches or your poverty. I love you. I am commanded that I love you. I love you anyway. There is the witness of the Spirit of God within me that bears witness with the Spirit of God in you. And we love. And that love is a two-way street. You love me and I love you. Is there ever in any community such a common bond of fellowship and love as Christian love that is revealed in Christ Jesus? And I share with you there is nowhere. There is no way. If you belong to this society or that society, it is governed upon how many dues you pay, how much dues you pay, and how often you pay them. It is governed upon looking after your physical welfare and your physical well-being and your sociological developments. Name any club, name any order, name any lodge, and that's all it amounts to. You may take secret vows. You may pretend to be something. You may wear strange clothes, go through strange ceremonies, each one denying the glory of Jesus Christ, and you may do it, my friend, but this precious holy word demands no such nonsense from you. It says when you love Jesus Christ, all those that love Jesus Christ love you. Hence the first hospital was started by Christians. Hence the first insurance company was started by Christians. Hence the first nursing units were started by Christians. Hence the first schools were started by Christians. But then all of those things have got away from the church and somehow the church has become isolated. It lost its ability to hold on to all these peripheral things in expressing its love, it lost its love. We identify with the Apostle Paul, the more I love you, the less I be loved. Mm? There's the human side. Now time has gone, but I wanted to share with you the divine side, so we'll take two minutes or more. The divine side is this. First, there are five things here. Be very quick, promise. As his children... We are objects of his peculiar love. Now you need to go to John 7. You need to read in your own time, verses 2 and 3, and then John 16 and verse 27, and Isaiah 43 and verses 1 through 3. You'll discover that the moment you become his child, you become the object of his peculiar love. Ladies and gentlemen, the second thing, once you become the child of God, you become the subjects of His fatherly care. So precious is this. Matthew talks about it in 6.32. So precious is this. The psalmist, in many psalms, but there are two I leave with you. 37 and verse 3 and 75 and verse 2. The fatherly care of God the Father. The El Shaddai that cuddles me to his breast and feeds me and nourishes me. The El Shaddai, the God who loves me as a father, as his children. The third instance, we are subjects of his parental discipline. Now, this isn't quite as neat. It's not quite as nice. But if you turn to Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11, you'll discover that the Father who loves us chastens us and causes us to be chastened. Chastening, chastising, I don't know how you pronounce it but it ends up exactly the same. He walks softly but carries a big stick. He makes sure that we are aware, that we are reminded constantly He is God and on His throne. And we are to remember we belong. We are His own. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a passionate thing. In the fourth instance, as His children, we are, and this is so glorious and so very beautiful as far as I can tell, but we are the subjects of His parental comfort. And His parental comfort has to be understood After that we have been chastised, then does he bring us great comfort by receiving us after repentance. Often a child that is caught with his hand in the cookie jar will respond to the the glowering parent, it wasn't me, it was my hand. I didn't do it honest. The parent sees the hand still in the cookie jar and the parent says chastisement is to be spilled upon you. The child yells and squeaks and makes lots of noise. The parent, if the parent is foolish, at that point becomes soft-hearted and backs off. And says, well, don't do it again, child. Drop the cookies in the jar, take your hand out, and go and wash your hands. I often wonder why we tell them to wash their hands after they've fingered the food. And the foolish parent then says to the child, Don't do it again. But the parent is sure when he's done that to find his child with his hand in the cookie jar again. For sure, you older parents, you know the mistake I'm referring to. You younger parents, you'll make it. But don't. See, but God doesn't do that. He says, You've got your hand in the cookie jar. You know what comes when you put your hand in the cookie jar? This is what happens when your hand's in the cookie jar. Now turn with me to 2 Corinthians. In chapter 1, when it's happened and you've been chastised by God because your hand was in the cookie jar and it shouldn't have been there, the chastisement falls upon you. God then has parental comfort and He comforts the weeping child. He comforts the distracted child. He comforts those that have been discomforted. Look at verse 4 of chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians. Speaking of, well, look at chapter 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. You have no comfort to give another until you have received the comfort of God. There is great comfort having received the whipping for putting the hand in the cookie jar. There is great comfort when the same whipper takes you and loves you until the crying has ceased. God does that. Last of all, and I want you to see it because it's terribly important to you and to me, It's important to every Christian, every person that says they love Christ. I want you to see with me that as his children, we are made heirs to a great inheritance. Open your Bible, please, at 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1. And you will see there a beautiful truth. My dear friends, right here on this earth, (coughs) I may not have much. (coughs) I've got enough. Sometimes I have to spare. But as the Apostle Paul said, "I've, I've learned to abound and to be abased. I've had plenty and I've had nothing. But I've learned to be content. And that's the lesson God teaches us on this earth. To be content. Now then, but when I get to heaven, I'm going to be so rich, I don't know what I'll do with it all. Look at 1 Peter, in chapter 1, verse 3 blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of jesus christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible undefiled and that fadeth not away reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of god through faith unto salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I have an inheritance and I'm kept in the power of God so that that inheritance shall never escape me, not ever. God is so kind to give me that inheritance. He says, I'll preserve you as I preserve the inheritance. Here is an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away. And here is a person who is kept in the power of God, so that when that inheritance is giveable, I am receivable. Ladies and gentlemen, do you love Christ? Are you in love with God's remedy for your sin and for your life? Are you? Today you have an opportunity. Acknowledge, I am His and He is mine. Just receive Him as your Lord. Acknowledge Him as your Savior and love Him. Be true. Let's pray. Father, we are very mindful of the preciousness of the Word of God. As Thou dost bless us and keep us in Thy grace and peace, we ask that Thou would especially cause thy blessing to be upon us now. Lord, if there's someone here that needs to make that commitment, make it easy for them to do so. If there's someone here that feels they must, Lord, turn to thee and claim that adoption that's in Christ, let them do it. This we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.